I'm Jason Barnwell. I work on legal business operations and strategy for Microsoft. Today, I'm chatting with Makalika Naholoa, Microsoft's head of trademarks. This conversation started an email triggered by my conversation with Lisa Coney of Adobe Systems Incorporated about big law firms going to $190,000 a year for their first year associate salaries. Makalika asked, did you consider talking about the role law schools are playing in this problem? The cost of legal education is out of control. Thank you very much for making the time to chat with me today, Makalika. Of course, super excited about it. All right, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Because I think that'll help frame the conversation. Sure, so I have been practicing for eight years. So I started law school in 2007, um, graduated in 2010 in the depth of the recession that impacted the legal market substantially. Um, and I started my practice in Seattle at a firm, firm here, um, graduated from Columbia Law, and have been here at Microsoft for the last five years. Great. And where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up mostly in the Southwest, uh, in a rural part of central Arizona. Uh, but I've got roots all over the country, and um, at this point now call Seattle and Hawaii my homes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do you have many people from your background who are legal professionals? No, zero, zero. Um, so I've I, only got a couple of relatives who've gone to grad school. So. so I think it's at least worth exploring a little bit on how that journey happened for you, how you entered the legal profession and, and what brought you there. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I studied math and computer science as an undergrad and then expected that I might, going into school, I expected that I might actually pursue a more STEM-focused um, career and experimented with a couple of different things in STEM before after graduation before deciding to go to law school. And everything I learned about law school, I learned from online research, you know, videos on YouTube, because YouTube was already a thing by then, which is incredible. Uh, so yeah, I didn't have a lot of um, real life guidance. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's interesting in that context to get into a little bit about how you chose the law firm that you ultimately attended and what your process was and what you were deciding among when, when you were doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, not having um, real life mentors on this journey to picking the career and the profession actually played a big role in why I wanted to do it. I mean, I come from a super underrepresented group of people in the profession um, and felt that, you know, there is this huge need. And um, so in a way, that actually is a part of why I started the journey is because we needed more Native Hawaiians and Native Americans in general in the profession. Um, But it did mean that I was trying to get savvy based on what you can get from the internet. And um, the aspiring law student community is actually, it's kind of like self-diagnosing like medical conditions online. Like that's kind of what it's like. You just get a lot of hysteria and like um, you're trying to figure out like what's reality from all the mostly hearsay and rumors that is, are populated there. Um, but what I, my perception at the time was that it was really important to go to the highest ranking school possible. And that was because, again, perception at the time based on the information available to me was that if I wanted to have the best possible postgraduate opportunities, that was gonna be one of the heaviest factors especially for someone like me who didn't know anyone. So it just seemed like, you know, there were some things I couldn't control, which is not having a lot of resources, not having a lot of connections to the community, 
um, I had some ability to control where I could go to school. And so how did that play out in your decision? Well, I mean, when I was going through the process, the first thing was just I applied really broadly. I just mm -hmm. did not know what I what to expect from this admissions process. I mean, when I'd gone to undergrad, I just went to the school that was local to me. Mm -hmm. It didn't even seem like an option based on my background to to go anywhere else. And that alone was like a huge step in my community and in my family. Um, and so applying for law school was just like a really new experience for me and I was like, you know, totally self-guided. So I applied tons of different places and then just saw what came back. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I had a range of options actually, um, super fortunate. And and so I started calling it, I, one of the big things was cost actually. And I think that's true for a lot of law students. So I, I looked at, you know, the spread and what I think is a lot of people's experiences, the higher ranking against whatever US news says is the best ranking schools and, and also just sort of tradition in the profession, like they tend, you know, getting admitted there, they tend to have um, more some of the leaner financial aid packages. And then as you make your way down the list, you know, if you get more generous packages, right? And so um, I was looking at the cost and get huge sticker shock, didn't know how to manage this, knew that I could get loans, but thought, wow, this is like way eclipsing what I had borrowed to get a four-year degree, right? This is my pre-law sensibilities. Four years of education costs, you know, this small number compared to three years of education, which is this humongous number that I never could have imagined paying when I was a child. Um, so I started making phone calls, asking deans of admission, like, how is this done? And I was actually told, I'll never forget one conversation I had with a law um, school dean who basically just said, look, if you come to our law school, you're going to make the kind of money that pays that off, so everyone just borrows. Wow. Basically, just do it. <laughs> you're lucky to be in here. Take the debt. You'll go on to a big firm, and you'll pay it off. And I didn't go there because I was so turned off by that conversation. But nevertheless, I did go to a different law school where basically the same story played out. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and for you, it it ultimately did play out in as much as you got uh, a, a good paying job mm -hmm. at a large law firm mm -hmm. and and so it did work out for you that's correct okay even so, in the recession yeah and so i guess how do you think like well do you really think that these salary increases that we're seeing now are ridiculous well my reaction to it it, there's kind of a couple different things I think about. One is, I understand there's the sticker shock. And it was sticker shock in, in 2007 when I joined. I mean, the cost of the education gave me sticker shock, and then the projections that we would earn afterwards also gave me sticker shock, well, obviously in a more positive way. Um, but if you start from there, and the market rate for big law at that moment was 160 it had it just gone up from 145 for first year associates to 160. So this was 2010. This was in they that change happened in 2007 when I matriculated. Okay. Um, and but that number because the recession happened shortly thereafter, that stuck until two years ago. Mm -hmm. Right. So that stuck for more than 10 years. Um, and now one year later we're seeing another 10k jump to 190. Right. So mm -hmm. on the one hand, compared to what the median income in America is right now, I get the sticker shock. It's the same sticker shock that existed in 2007, right? But then you think about what is that rate of change over time? So we've had 11 years of time pass, 
and that difference is roughly 2% a year. It's mm-hmm. less than 2 the, Actually, it's less. It's, so if you think about inflation as being on average 2%, actually not keeping up with inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge is that wages in the U.S. have also not kept up with inflation in general. So it almost, e- even though when you think about it that way, uh, I don't think it's an outrageous rate of change. You know, we do have to acknowledge that the sticker shock is still there because U.S. wages aren't keeping up with inflation either. So there's still this huge gap. But arguably, it's a similar gap as we had in 2007. And so part of the reaction, I kind of think, I question whether it's a proportional reaction to the level of unfairness that we're, that we're feeling because mm-hmm. of that change, because really we're upset about the same gap that existed over 10 years ago. Right. And so basically there's some cognitive biases that are probably being activated here that are causing a bit of outrage? Maybe. I mean, there still could be really valid questions about value for cost, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that the thrust of legal operations right now, and you're better positioned to talk about it than me, is to say, look, what we really care about is getting the highest value we can for the amount we pay for the service, and that's trending towards moving away from the billable hour in a lot of cases. Um, And so then I think, okay, well, then address your issues with value that way, right? It, it is kind of, to me, a peculiar thing to be so hypercritical of what the workers are getting paid. I mean, at Microsoft, we've done a number of things that are we're really proud of to ensure that the vendors we work with have what we think are reasonable floors to their benefit packages and their um, comp. And it's just odd to have such a negative reaction in the other direction, right? Mm-hmm. To, to be upset that the worker is getting paid potentially too much. Reasonable when you are in a billing scenario where it's, there's like this direct correlation, right? The billable hour creates a direct correlation between what you pay the worker to what the client pays. But we're already moving away from the billable hour for this reason and others. Um, and so, you know, that's part of my reaction to this. It's like, well, we're making sure that we get value by structuring our engagements differently. and. Um, we're being very public about that, and we're not the only people who are doing that. And so that's the trend that the profession let them figure out, as employers, what makes sense for the labor. Yeah. No, I think that makes sense for us, and as much as you're right, we are trying to pay for value. Mm-hmm. And how a partner thinks about assembling and constructing that value, we really want them to figure that out, right? We want them to deliver the most that they can. And so it is incumbent upon them to get the talent that they need to do the work that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, And and you're right, we're trying to move most of our work to alternative and value-based approaches. And we do believe that that hopefully gives our partner firms more latitude to think about constructing solutions. Because ultimately, I think one thing we would love to see is a situation where they are able to create creative solutions that ultimately cost them less because they're getting more leverage from their human capital, from the people, right? So mm-hmm. they figure out ways to, to really unlock the, the thing that make humans so good using all kinds of other support structures. So that could be other uh, non-conventional uh, labor in the, in the legal market. That could be technology solutions. That could be process improvements. But basically what you do is you create a situation where you have uh, a legal professional who is supported in a way that they can do the things that have extreme value and a lot of the other things that consume their time, they're spending less of their time doing that. And so it actually potentially supports 
uh, a much higher uh, salary because if you think about the scale that you can get off that talent mm -hmm. and you can think about how much value it brings to us as a client, it's totally meritorious. Mm -hmm. So that is a place we'd like to get to, but that is incongruous with the prevailing business model of the law firm, which is I have this inventory, which is basically hours of, uh, of, of my timekeepers, and I'm trying to get those off the, that off the shelves. Mm -hmm. And so that we do have this incentive mismatch, um, but we think that it's solvable. And so that's a very long kind of rambling discourse on exactly what you were saying, which is, yeah, we as a consumer are certainly downstream of the costs of the inputs, mm -hmm. but we want to get to a place where we are not as sensitive to that because we figure out what something should cost based on the value of it mm -hmm. rather than what is the input cost for the partner. Right, rather than it being like a pass-through charge with some with some markup. margin and right. markup, right? Yeah. Totally, that makes total sense. I mean, you know, I have reactions to a couple of things you just said. One of them would be, you know, by moving to this, um, it, it also will allow them to deal with the costs of their labor, right? I mean, I think one of the things, you know, we, we have the sticker shock, we have this sense that this is unfair because we're measuring fairness against what we made when we started practicing or what we think an average American makes. But, uh, it, you know, the reality is that, you know, we talked started talking about law schools and what the cost of education is. I mean, the cost of the labor is actually quite high. American labor is high, and this labor is particularly expensive because the cost to, to produce it is really high and continues to increase with not as much discussion as I think there should be about that. Um, and, you know, your comment about us as kind of the downstream customer flagged another point to me, which is that, yeah, we're customers and we're downstream, but we're also, for many of us in-house, all colleagues at the bar, right? And, and I think that's another thing that um, has just been really interesting for me to observe as a part of this community is that, um, you know, that, what does that mean anymore as a community? And like, like do is my only opportunity to influence this from the interest as the customer, mm -hmm. right? Where we also have an opportunity to influence this as just members of the profession, right? And that's what makes us different than a lot of our other vendors is that like we're, we're customers, but we're also all colleagues at the bar. So, um, you know, one thing that I would challenge us all to think about in the legal community when we see this and we kind of get that sticker shock is to say, okay, wait a minute, you know, this whole system, we have actually a voice with how the whole system works, not just as a customer or as a law firm partner or as, you know, a law school administrator. It's like we actually all, you don't just sit with that role. Like you also just have this cross-profession interest as a member of the bar. Um, and so I think we should be compassionate to our new attorneys and understand like, okay, what's going on there? Why, why is it that law firms are targeting like this one part of the employment relationship as the thing that makes the big difference, right? I mean, I, my experience in private practice wasn't that partners were just always stopping by trying to pad my wallet. Right? I mean, that just wasn't, that was not like the culture, right? I mean, is that they actually were doing thoughtful analysis on what's the difference maker. Why is that the difference maker? Well, I mean, the costs of the education are enormous. I I love my law school, but um, they're sort of the worst of the worst in the sense that it's the highest cost. It was the highest cost when I went there and it continues to be the highest cost based on the research I was doing this weekend just to get up to speed on what the status quo is today. Um, you know, 67000 is tuition at my law school right now. 
per year. So, you know, basically 70K, three years, 210,000 just for tuition. And then you got to live in New York City for three years. To be an ABA accredited law school, you can't let your students work full-time jobs. Like Mm -hmm. there's actual rule about how much a student can work. Um, So that means you can work between your first and second year and between your second and third year to try to um, absorb some of those costs if you don't come from, you know, means to support it otherwise. So if you come in the door with nothing, you're, you've got those two summers to try to make some money to um, manage those costs. Even if you're making 190000 if you're at a firm that's paying that for the first years, and so usually summer associates are getting paid the, you know, three-month um, um, portion of that first-year associate salary, and, and you assume, like, a modest tax obligation, I mean, they're, they're looking at maybe 37000 take-home pay. And that's if you get a big law job twice, even at my law school, which has a really high success rate of placing people in those kind of jobs when they want them. It's unusual to get that kind of job twice. Usually, mm-hmm. you know, very few get it the first year, and then you. So really, you're looking at you're making somewhere between thirty five to seventy against two hundred and ten in tuition, and then again, you got the cost of living in New York City. And my school did a great job of providing reduced cost housing, but still, this is expensive. This is a really expensive education. Um, and then what are you? You're about 25 and you start practicing and you're coming in with essentially a mortgage, again, unless you have means. Um, and what typically what people will, you can finance that for repayment over five, 10 or even more years. Um, I like to think about holistic experience for a person. So if you're 25, let's say it's reasonable to think that you wanna start a family at around 30 to 35. So. You really want to, I, it's my goal, it has been my goal to pay off my education before I'm paying for my kids, right? I mean, I think that's reasonable. I mean, at some level, if we don't eventually pay it off, you're just an indentured servant. I mean, I, I know that's provocative to say, but I think that's, um, I mean, I think that's somewhat a reality. And so let's say you want to pay it off in 10 years. I mean, that's a $2,300 a month payment. That's like... So you get that sticker shock because you're comparing the salary to the average U.S. income, but the average U.S. citizen, I hope, doesn't have nearly that much money just for the education that gets them in the door at their job. Um, so I just think let's be thoughtful about that and let's all recognize that like you might be the customer and so when you put on your customer hat, you have certain messaging to your vendors about costs, but also don't forget that you're a member of the bar and so you need to think more holistically about this issue, about the whole system provide your feedback to the ABA, be active in the ABA, provide your feedback to your law school, like help get in there with these law firms and these new lawyers who are trying to navigate this. And it's not, I don't think you're having your most effective influence if you just put on your customer hat Mm -hmm. and sort of express anger at the firms. So you're, you're right that, so we as Microsoft are not just a customer because Ultimately, we're also in the talent market, right? And so the people who come out of law schools and go and get some form of training somewhere, because typically Microsoft does not try, uh, hire uh, legal professionals until you're kind of minimum viable uh, state on that side, we are very much a player. And so we rely on these other partners in the ecosystem to, to mint the talent that we ultimately need to do our work. And so I agree that we can't just wash our hands up and say like, well, this is just so broken, we, we have nothing to say about it. 
So uh, one thing that we care deeply about here is making the composition of the profession look more like the composition of society. And so I'm curious if you have any specific thoughts on how these very daunting numbers impact our ability to update the composition of the profession so that it is more reflective of what society looks like. Yeah, I mean, I'll say from my personal experience, um, the salaries being where they are enabled my career path based on the way the system worked when I entered it, right? So when I entered it, there's no negotiating the cost of the education, right? Not for my position. I just had to decide, do I go there or do I go to a school that has potentially very different outputs in terms of where my postgraduate career is going to go and save costs. So those are the, those are my choices there. Um, typical, I think, really common law school experience, like law student, risk adverse, so decided to take on the risk of the debt versus the risk of maybe not having the employment opportunities that I wanted at the end. Um, and then, but but there was debt and had to be dealt with, right? And so at when I left the school, I mean, to be here at Microsoft today and in most in-house roles, like I needed the training that Big Law provided, but transparently, I also needed that income to manage that level of debt. So, you know, for what it's worth, I think that as someone, there's a lot of people who are similarly positioned as me going into law school, wanting to get the best educations possible and having aspirations to join organizations like this. But the only way to do it is if you have that up from a financial perspective or one of the, one of the, well, maybe it's not the only way to do it. I should be careful with using broad language, but one of the, ways that you do it is by going to law firms, getting the great training, but also finding a way to manage that debt. And it's at that level, at that, so these salary levels that students are able to do it. And I think if you look into the debt that they take on to get the education that you want them to have as a customer, often the numbers are not so crazy. Well, so we, we were looking at some of the numbers, and the other thing that I think doesn't always shine through the conversation is that it is very much a bimodal distribution on the salary front, right? So we often fixate on uh, the national rate for big law, but apparently they represent usually between 17 and 18% of the, the total population. And so, you know, it's very easy to fixate on that, but most of the folks who graduate from law school are gonna fall into that 40 to $65,000 a year salary. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about that is many of those people are are paying the same rate, right? So Mm -hmm. you went to an elite school that charges at the very top end, but I suspect that there are a lot of schools that are not nearly as elite, and even if they're only charging 80% mm-hmm. of what yours did, the distribution of salaries that are available to their graduates make servicing the debt that they graduate with even more challenging. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm, if I'm really honest about this, I'm more concerned about people having the 190 or whatever, the very large salary dangled out in front of them. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that when they graduate, what is available will pay far less than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's been, I've noticed there's a ton of 
um, articles out there that have been written, I mean, probably even before I started in the profession, but in, you know, the years I've been in the profession, there's just constantly articles telling people to basically not go to law school because of these costs, because of these issues, because of the um, skewed perception on what the average experience is versus the reality. And the average experience is that we are all paying a lot for education and we're not all getting paid those numbers that help you to you know, address the debt in a reasonable number of years. So yeah, I think that's right. So if you had it to do all over again, do you think you would have made the same choice? Yes. Okay. Do you think that there's, so I should also note that you uh, on occasion uh, teach uh, at a law school, a uh, local law school, and so you are at times professor at Nolawa as well. And I'm curious if there's anything that you think that we should think about changing the nature of legal education so that it's easier for the students who join us in the bar to create more value from the education they receive? Well, one of the things that I think we could definitely do to help get more value out of the whole system is to, I mean, mindful of what these law students are taking on, is to be a little bit more creative and inclusive about how we, what we reward from the system. So, I got a fantastic legal education at my law school. I don't want people to take away that, you know, I think that those are bad investments and those schools are in those students. But we could put more pressure on them to create students that are in a position to help get more value by actually lowering their cost. Um, and because I do think actually when I look at my peers from that school, and, and again, many other schools, because you're raising a really good point that it's not just the elite schools that are expensive. Like it's it's just across the board, the education is expensive. Um, it, it's, it's like one of the things I think is really weird is when you look at cost of medical school, which you kind of see like the obvious costs there, they're really similar. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, it, it, law school has none of the labs. <laughs> None of the, none of the like, cadavers and all these things that go into a medical school. Where does the money go? I, exactly. And like it's so you know we could put a little bit more pressure and be a little bit more inclusive in recruiting, and rewarding schools that are helping create stu- like produce students who have great educations and are also in a position to not just optimize for the dollar. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what's happening right now. I fear. There's also issues of like. And in, in the ABA actually, I think, tries to get ahead of this, but issues of what they call, you know, predatory admissions where, so yeah. there's other things, you know, the ABA actually is trying through their accreditation process to address this, but um, that's sort of getting at, I think, their focus is on people who are, you know, they're taking on debt potentially because they're being misled mm-hmm. are not adequately advised about what the debt means versus what they can expect and then are ultimately never even passing the bar right so they're focusing on this but they're focusing on it you know for this part of the spectrum of experience right and so i think what we're saying is no we also we also want to focus on folks who are going to pass the bar are going to have you know have great potential um, but the system is designed in such a way where they're almost forced to optimize for one thing and one thing only. And we're saying as customers and as members of the bar, 
that this is not good for the profession. Like, it's not good for our companies as customers. It's not good for our profession as members of the bar. And so, you know, we need to think about how do we put that, how do we include law schools in this conversation about, like, what is their role in how this system is turning out to look? Um, and how can we reward schools that we think are doing better at helping us to create a profession that looks the way we want it to look? One, because they're pro- helping to produce students that can then become the kind of lawyers that we think we want um, in terms of what they look like and reflecting the population so that we can uphold the rule of law over time, but also are not so burdened by debt that they are forced to optimize for one thing and one thing only when they go into the profession. So I'll note uh, that you brought a toolbox with you to law school that is not that common. So you do have a STEM background, mm-hmm. and uh, and so we've worked together quite a bit. And mm-hmm. one of your superpowers is effectively process analysis. Like you have a very analytical way about you that is not just purely in the uh, the, the classics style. You know, you certainly have that in spades. But you're also very good at seeing the big picture, thinking through the patterns that are there, and turning that into something that works efficiently. And that is something that we don't see coming out of law school, by and large. What we see are people who are still trained to be crafts, craftspeople, mm-hmm. which, by the way, you need. You need that to be an effective attorney. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I think is interesting for us as somebody who, as a, an entity that buys legal services, is we often see the, the wheels being reinvented over and over again. And so I think one of the things that we would love to see more of, and, and this could happen in many different ways, is we either start teaching the you know attorneys how to use technology, how to think about process design, how to, how to take the brilliance that they bring to their craft and figure out how to scale that through you know, other resourcing means. Uh, it would be great if they had some indoctrination into that earlier, because I think you live and breathe that. I've seen it in your work product, and I don't even think you realize that it's there. But it's something that <laughs> allows you to basically impart your superpower to people who are less experienced than you are. Your ability to analyze something, really tease out the patterns, and then give someone uh, a very clear understanding of, this is what steered my decision. This, these are the, uh, the specific indicia that really govern my, my guidance on this. That's where you're uh, very disciplined and capable, and I don't think you realize it. And that's something that's very unique. And so I think a lot of people can do that um, on, a, on, a, on a continual one-off basis as craftspeople, but figuring out how to extract that part of, of their craft and turn that into something that's replicable by people who are not as skilled or that becomes something that ends up being deployed through technology or processes or the like. That's one way that I think that we could radically change the value that can be created from the legal profession. Mm-hmm. Because it not only ultimately creates situations where you as, for example, a law firm can create uh, tools, processes, and other mechanisms that effectively I as a, a consumer of legal services would, would purchase and allows you to create value even while you sleep rather than only while you have people awake and billing. But it also, I think, wakes us up to all kinds of other opportunities to unlock access to justice, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you think about the pro bono work that we do, and we do it on a one-off basis and it makes us feel great, if we could somehow take the things that really change people's lives and give them access to, to justice, and we could 
unleash that through a scale by really taking what's in our heads and, and creating that in something that's more accessible, then I think that our profession be, it becomes much more relevant. Mm-hmm. And it starts to get to what you're talking about, about the, the important role that we play in society. Mm-hmm. And I feel that our ability to contribute to society and make it a better place is somewhat limited because of the conventional notions of how we ply our craft. And so that's one place where I would push law, the, uh, the law schools to really think about, okay, I'm going to make these folks excellent attorneys, but how can I give them a fulcrum, right, mm-hmm. so that they get real leverage off that? And then when those people show up at a law firm or anywhere to practice, and all of a sudden they're doing these amazing things, then I as a downstream consumer say like, okay. I'm happy to pay for that because guess what? It's worth it. Mm-hmm. So that's one of those superpowers that I think you have that you've had in your pocket for most of your life that you carry that's differentiating that I don't even know if you can see it. Well, I mean, I mean you know, my reaction to that is that, um, other than thank you, is that I, I think you're highlighting something that we talk a lot about, traditionally innovative industries like tech, um, that doesn't get talked about maybe as much in law because it's viewed as a more traditional industry versus a constantly innovating industry, which I think is not a really fair dichotomy, but I think it probably resonates with a lot of people in the profession. And 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 it's that innovation tends to come from the intersection of two disciplines, yes. right? Two disciplines that traditionally don't seem um, to run alongside each other actually intersect and then you have um, um, innovation. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think you're highlighting, which I think plays into one of my earlier comments, is is you, know, you and I are in tech, right? We're lawyers in tech. So we're living at, at, at an interesting intersection where there's opportunity for us to innovate. It's really important that in-house lawyers do not forget that they're part of the bar. Mm-hmm. Because you're actu- we are actually really well positioned to live in intersections where we can then bring that back to the bar and and innovate the profession um so that's actually my reaction to what you're saying is that you know to the audience of people who are in-house and thinking about this problem just to be mindful of how empowered you are to be a full member of the bar we're actually really lucky i don't know if you know this but um in a lot of countries outside of the u.s when you go in-house you actually have to leave the bar so we are really lucky because going in house we still get to be full members of the bar that's not the case in all the countries and so we really are leaving a lot of like important power that many lawyers around the world don't get when we think about ourselves as stepping away from the bar and not being full members of it we are uniquely positioned we are really uniquely positioned to have much more than normal innovation capacity because we're typically living in intersections outside of the law, right? Or, or an intersection of law meeting something else, which is what our business does that we work for. Um, and because we're US lawyers, we are full members of the bar. So I just, that would be my takeaway point from that. That is very enlightened. As, as a member of the bar, I look forward to figuring out how I can contribute back more because I am passionate about I, I, So I love being an attorney. Like I, It is just a fun job. Me too. And I am very concerned that we are creating a situation where we are going to have diminished relevance because we're not figuring out ways to bring what makes what we can do so powerful and impactful back to society. And so Yeah, and I think we're having a hard time. I mean, thinking about the... 
um, behavioral economics. Again, I know you and I are, are reading a, a lot of the same materials on behavioral economics right now, and a lot of business leaders are thinking about how to apply this research. You know, one of the topics that I am focused a lot on right now is social norms versus market norms, right? And it's market norms are where people think about value-based exchange. And a lot of what we're talking about when we're talking about salaries is, is, this the, is this number equal to the value that I'm getting? What I think is really challenging, again, another challenging issue for the law is that we there's a market component to what we do, but there's also a component to what we do in the space we occupy in society where social norms should apply. Um, and so that's just another thing to think about. And again, like having fully engaged members of the bar in lots of different spaces are how you're going to leverage this kind of research in thinking about what's the right policy and the right actions to, to continue to steer the profession forward. So, I, I'm in violent agreement. I mean, there's a reason that we call it a profession, right? It it's, is more than just the, the rate that you make for your service. I think we, I hope we aspire to being such an instrumental part of society that it goes to exactly the value that goes beyond just where commerce ends, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I think you're right. This has been quite an interesting conversation. I didn't know uh, where this was going to end up when we started, but we covered a lot of ground. I don't want to give it short shrift because I want to have you back, but can you just talk a couple minutes about your new role and what you're up to? Sure. Uh, in May, I took on the role of head of Microsoft's trademark team. It is an awesome job for an awesome team. Um, you know, Microsoft has a number of famous brands, um, really interesting cutting edge work. We think about all, we, you know, we think about where all kinds of areas of law are going to intersect with technology and that challenges us. It's certainly true for trademark. Um, and so I'm having a lot of fun right now. Well, good. Great. I don't want you to give too much away because I, I think you're going to learn some interesting things and I want you to bring those back. I, I want to ride along with that story. Well, Makalika, thank you so much for making the time to chat today. I really appreciate it. This was really fun. Thank you. All right. More to come.